This is Regenerative Skills, the podcast helping you to learn the skills and solutions to create an abundant and connected future. I'm your host, Oliver Gaucher. New Society Publishers has been a leader in sustainable publishing for over 40 years now. They're an activist, solutions-oriented publisher focused on bringing you tools for a world of change. They've now published over 600 books available both in print and ebooks, as well as an increasing library of audiobook selection as well. They care deeply about both what they publish and how they do business, and so the same thinker and doer approach permeates their in-house work and the books themselves. A certified B Corporation, they print on 100% post-consumer recycled paper, and they are carbon neutral, and they print only in North America, never offshore. And that's just the company themselves. Most importantly, they've got the best selection of books that you need to build your own regenerative ecological or community-based projects. You can check out their full list of titles now at newsociety.com. Hey there, everybody, and welcome back. Now, we live in a time when everyone seems to be looking for high-tech solutions for every problem. Maybe this is due to all of the new tech that has come out in recent decades with lofty promises of new frontiers, or the fact that so many of us are removed from regular interaction with the natural world. But I genuinely believe that technology is usually over-applied and actually responsible for more problems than it usually solves. And for that reason, I always like to see when professionals advocate for low-tech solutions and return to basics and analog methods, especially when working with nature. Now, today I have the pleasure of introducing two guests whose work I've admired for a while and who co-teach an online course called Low-Tech Erosion Control, which focuses on the approach and the techniques that are approachable for almost everyone to reverse and regenerate landscapes suffering from water erosion. Now, first up, there's Jeff Adams, who is the owner and operator of Terra Sofia LLC, a watershed restoration and landscape contracting firm based in Moab, Utah. He has a depth of experience in permaculture, watershed rehabilitation, water harvesting, erosion control, and educational programs. With over 20 years of field experience, Jeff brings a practical and integrated approach to each project and course that he does. Now, along with him, we're joined by Neil Bertrando, a regenerative specialist who has focused on integrated water harvesting, agroforestry systems, homestead production gardens with season extension, medicinal pollinator habitats, and ecological restoration for over 12 years. He has been a permaculture instructor at OSU since 2014. He holds degrees in biology and environmental science and owns an ecological design and education firm, RT Permaculture, specializing in effective and regenerative landscapes. So together, we start by digging into each of their unique paths into working with ecological restoration in the American Southwest and the Great Basin regions. They each describe the challenges of their climate and their context, as well as the historical and current sources of degradation of the surrounding ecology that is often behind the restoration projects where they work. From there, we systematically walk through the site assessment process of reading the landscape and understanding the local ecology to begin the project design. Both Jeff and Neil describe the ways that they develop a plan of action, including the information that they gather, and how they assess different implementation strategies, especially from the low-tech options and working with material found on site. We also talk about one of my favorite and often overlooked aspects of project design, which is the maintenance and revision strategies over time, as well as how to design with those in mind. 
Now, this discussion is full of practical advice that you can use to get started on your own watershed restoration project at a manageable scale. And so I'll turn things over now to Jeff Adams and Neil Bertrando. All right, fellas. Well, thanks so much for taking time to speak with me today. It's really a pleasure to connect after I've been following the webinars and the series that you guys have been putting out for a while. How are you doing, Jeff and Neil? I'm doing great. Excited to be here. Thanks for hosting us. Yeah, I'm doing really, really well, Oliver. Thank you so much. I'm excited to be here as well. All right. Well, look, gentlemen, let's start from the beginning and go into a little bit of the backstory about how both of you started in this line of work that you now have designing and implementing permaculture landscapes, but really with a focus on the water side of the design. So maybe starting with Neil, how did you get into this line of work? Uh, well, I got into permaculture when I was in college and then continued to develop that passion uh, after I graduated, I traveled to Hawaii and ended up caretaking a 10-acre organic food orchard for a couple of years. And that was where I was really exposed to living closer to the land with, you know, most of my food and resources coming directly from the land, uh, either from where I was living or somewhere nearby, and not spending a lot of time in the built environment, um, which is, you know, particularly easy in, in Hawaii, where it's a tropical climate and warm year-round. And not a lot of um, snakes or bugs or other things that you might see in other places of the world. Uh, and then I, following that passion, I continued my studies uh, academically. I did a master's degree in environmental science with a focus on uh, stream quality and water quality and uh, stream health and how the urban corridors impact the quality of, of water in streams. And then uh, I ended up being at a, a conference, the Quivira conference, when I was doing some restoration work with a nonprofit that uh, we were doing large-scale weed removal and restoration work in the arid environment in northern Nevada. And we went to the Quivira Coalition Conference, and I met Craig Sponholz. And I was really inspired by the work that he was doing with uh, Bill Zedike and others in the area doing low-tech erosion control and watershed restoration. And I... Uh, followed his work closely after that and uh, was able to make it to one of his workshops and really hit it off with him and asked him if there was ever going to be an opportunity to do some hands-on field work. And uh, luckily, he's, he was able to fit me into one of his projects, which was up in on Comanche Creek in northern New Mexico. And that's actually where I met Jeffrey Adams, who was on uh, another project in the, in the same area. And uh, doing, I, I worked there with both Craig and Jeff for about five years in a row um, for about a month each year doing slope wetland restoration using low tech erosion control techniques as well as other watershed management techniques and um, really fell in love with the, the results of the work and the actual doing of the work, working with natural materials and seeing the the different parts of and pieces of the puzzle for watershed restoration and how some things would work and other things wouldn't work depending on the, the context and how the larger watershed was being managed as a whole. And then I continued on to do that in my own work. Uh, I run a consulting design and education business, which is, is just me. And uh, so I do primarily consulting and design, and then periodically I'll do some installation and or coaching and assist people with installation of things like low tech erosion control, water harvesting structures, 
um, erosion control plans, landscape restoration plans, and then also um, edible and, and medicinal homestead uh, development. Very cool. And you've got your own playground there outside of Reno, Nevada, right, to test all of these things out as well? Yeah, that's correct. Yeah, I, I live on a little over an acre, uh, so it's not it's not huge, but it's large enough to you know implement several different things. And I've been here for about 13 years, so I've seen a lot of change in the landscape and got a lot of feedback from the different things that I've tried. Uh, and then also, you know, I work with a local nonprofit. We have a, a five acre farm that uh, is actually within the city of Reno. So it's an urban farm, but it's um, also connected to open space. So it's really neat to see how different techniques and things have developed developed on that side as well. Very cool. Well, I'm looking forward to circling back around, and especially going deeper into the waterway restoration projects that you've done. But before then, Jeff, can you tell me about how you got started in this line of work? Yeah, totally. So when I really look back at it, um, as a child, I've always played in the puddles, played in the stormwater runoff, made little, you know, little dams and trying to just kind of be a kid playing around. And then as I got older, one of my first jobs was on a conventional landscaping crew. I call it the mow, blow and go style. You mow the lawn, you blow the grass clippings, and then you go to the next spot. And that wasn't all that exciting to me, though I did love working outside and working with the land. And then in 2002, I got turned on to permaculture and it was kind of this like aha moment, everything I always wanted to do but didn't know existed. And it took my kind of conventional trade skills backgrounds of landscaping, carpentry, construction type of stuff and added a whole new lens of intention and functionality and the sort of the ecology, the systems of it as well as the drive to take responsibility for one's own resources and actions. And so that was um, 2002. Then I went back to college at Humboldt State University in Northern California, and I designed an interdisciplinary degree in indigenous technology, which I coined at the time as the practical application of knowledge of a place to help meet the needs of that place, including all of its inhabitants. And in going through that degree and in blending that with my trade skills, I kept getting this call for, for working with water to like, how do I work with water? I grew up near the water. I love playing with water. We are water. And so over time, as I started my business, Terra Sophia, um, which I, I launched in 2006 and, and have been at it ever since. And working with water is kind of my way of specializing without actually getting too focused. It's very broad and encompassing. And so through that, I've done a lot of work with rain gardens, roof water catchment, gray water, irrigation. And then around um, 2011, I also ended up in New Mexico at the Kavira Coalition Conference and saw the sort of watershed scale applications. And I'd already been doing earthworks and rock work. And so it was a natural progression that I started um, similar to Neil working with Craig Sponholt, Steve Carson, Molly Walton, Bill Zedike, like all these players. And then just kind of ended up working up in, in Comanche Creek for about a decade and, and then starting to get more and more of my own projects, both on public lands and private lands doing low-tech erosion control, willow stream bank stabilizations, kind of these larger scale earthworks. And now I'm um, based in Moab, Utah, and I do kind of a combination, I'd say probably a, 
about half and half of like large scale public lands projects, public and private lands, I should say, there's a lot of working ranches that are doing the wet meadow restoration in collaboration with some of the public agencies. And then, um, and then still doing some residential and nonprofit landscaping, kind of with water retention, water harvesting, green infrastructure, permaculture as the driving forces. Very cool. Now, to give us some context about the area where you guys work, like I'm familiar with the Southwest. I've done everything from conservation cores in the natural parks to uh, projects with clients in that area and natural building. But for the rest of our audience who's maybe not familiar with the Southwest, can you tell me about what that landscape is like, although it can uh, be quite diverse in certain areas, and some of the challenges that people are facing there in water management, especially from historical impacts? Whoever wants to start. Yeah, I think um, broad brush strokes because it is a very diverse landscape. But here in Moab, our average annual precipitation is about nine inches, and some of that comes a little bit of that comes as as snow, but a lot a chunk of that comes as monsoonal rains. And so, if for anybody that's not familiar with monsoons, that's think like really high intensity thunderstorm that could drop say three quarters of an inch of rain in 20 minutes so you we're kind of dealing with a lot of really flashy systems that are pretty dry most of the time and then just get a deluge of rain that can you know runs off the rocks runs off things really quick because everything's dry and it's just coming down so fast um that said also a lot of work i do is up in the mountain valleys which have um a really unique set of landscapes in these wet meadows and slope wetlands and those have been found to just be extremely crucial for wildlife habitat for um, overall watershed health water storage and and downstream delivery by slowing and holding that water up in these kind of flatter moister landscapes that then get all the runoff from the surrounding mountains and have have become a really key area to focus some of the restoration and erosion control work. Um, and so that's, yeah, kind of a broad picture of the, the types of systems I'm generally working in here in the, in the greater Moab, Southeast Utah region. Nice. Yes, yeah, and um, you, know, you know, I'm in Northern Nevada. So I would consider you know, Southern Nevada, like Las Vegas area to be the, the Southwest. And, and northern Nevada is actually up in the Great Basin and the Intermountain West regions of the United States or North America. So there's uh, some significant variations in the, the climate patterns um, in, in these areas. The Great Basin is defined by the fact that all water that falls from the sky in the Great Basin stays in the Great Basin. It doesn't actually flow to the ocean. So it's it's one of the places on the planet where water actually only flows to terminal lakes, sinks, or playas, and ends up staying there. So you actually get, you know, some pretty interesting diversity of landscapes um, within the watershed because you have a lot of salt playas or salt pans and other features where, you know, minerals really accumulate. And so you have that to, to deal with and also integrate into your planning. And also you have fairly, some, sometimes fairly short distances where water is really traveling as, as overland flow, and you have a lot of kind of isolated aquifers as well. So that that's a, a significant variation from the Southwest. 
another another piece is that most of our precipitation where I am, this is not consistent necessarily across the Intermountain West or the Great Basin, but most of the precipitation in, in northwestern Nevada uh, comes similar to California's rainfall patterns in that it's a in the winter time, uh, like a Mediterranean climate type of rainfall pattern. And um, so it comes as snow. And so a lot of our rainfall and runoff events uh, are related to the variation between snow and rain. And when the temperatures are just right, when you have something like rainfall on snow, that will create some significant runoff events, which you know is, is potentially different than other locations. Uh, we also get significant runoff with snow melt from the mountains. And every now and then we will get uh, intense rainstorms like they get in the Southwest uh, in the in the summertime, you know, where you have an, an inch or an inch and a half and a half an hour to an hour. So uh, a lot of what what I'm working with is how do I manage the snow and retain the moisture from snowfall, as well as uh, looking at, at runoff and capturing and storing runoff. So there's some some little tweaks and other sorts of things that go on in the in the system when you get to managing both rain and snow and also uh, when you're primarily reliant upon uh, winter precipitation. Yeah, that's super interesting. I wasn't that familiar with that uh, Great Basin area and the Intermountains like you were talking about. Um, tell me about some of the infrastructure and the damage that has happened due to land management over mostly the colonial history that has put it in the precarious situation for water that both of your areas are experiencing in much of the places where you're working. I'll, I'll, I'll start on this one, Oliver. So, um, you know, co colonialism goes back uh, a decent ways. Uh, so I'm, I'm kind of assuming you're referring both to um, historic colonial pre-industrial uh, stressors. What would we call, what would we call those as, as legacy stressors? Mm -hmm. And also, um, and that would be anything historic even uh, up through industrialization. Uh, and then also we have current stressors. So there's two different uh, kind of things that we look at in the landscape when we're trying to identify uh, what's resulted in the current health of the landscape and any sort of trends of degradation or regeneration. And um, legacy stressors in particular um, for, I'll, I'll, I'll focus in on slope wetlands, which is where Jeff and I have worked a lot in the mountains of Northern New Mexico, but this also pertains to other areas of the, of the Western US especially. The, the primary legacy stressors that have led to watershed degradation are cattle trailing or livestock trailing, uh, construction of irrigation ditches and livestock ponds, and then uh, roadways, and particularly where roadways are crossing or intercept stream flow, and the roads often can become creeks. And those, those three, uh, and roadways both for modern vehicles, but particularly uh, historically uh, with wagon trains because those those wagons were heavy and their wheels were very skinny and so they really cut down into um, streams and wetlands when they crossed through them and so those three kind of primary categories of legacy stressors have led to a lot of down cutting and incision in, in wetlands and in stream uh, channels and watershed corridors uh, throughout the, the western U.S. and then of course modern industrialized society, you know, we're building large uh, areas of hardscape, both urban areas as well as super highways and, and those sorts of things. And, and even just paved roads, you know, throughout the, the broader landscape. And all of those concentrate and create flash runoff 
which, uh, you know, historically very few of the watersheds had uh, been in equilibrium with. And so they've had to shift and, and change their morphology and their hydrology to associate with that flash runoff. And generally that leads to uh, a, some sort of incision or downcutting uh, in the landscape and then drying out of the landscape. Uh, and also to give, you know, the, the broader society and, and trends, you know, some optimism and uh, positive, you know, credibility that there is a lot of work nowadays where watershed and water flow uh, and watershed health are really taken into account when developing. So, you know, um, people are removing dams in the Western US to improve salmon habitat and salmon access and stream flow. Uh, people are doing a lot more thoughtful development of roadways with integrating watershed restoration and wetland restoration using natural channel design and other sorts of you know, watershed principles to maintain wetland integrity and stream health. So those things, you know, our, our current context is kind of on the, the tipping point, I feel like, of just kind of broad scale brushstroke of we develop where we need to versus now we're going to integrate our development with watershed planning a little bit more comprehensively and holistically. Nice. Jeff, is there anything you want to add to that from your observations? Yeah, I think that was an amazing overview, Neil. Um, the other couple that could be legacy or current stressors are things that kind of anything that is a surface disturbance or changes land use type. So, you know, if you're in an area that has mining or um, forestry or um, development, paving something can dramatically change the speed and quantity of runoff volumes. So, so really anytime we change the land surface, we're doing something to the hydrology. And that can be something that helps improve it and slow it down or that speeds it up and degrades it. So I'm always looking at what's what's happening and what has happened and is happening on not just the site that I'm working on, but the surrounding properties too, because you know, water and runoff do not know about private property lines. And so we want to kind of have that bigger picture context of like, okay, we need to really focus on this site because it's where we're doing the project but we have to at least be aware of what's happening on adjacent properties so that we can know, you know, in, in permaculture, we call those sectors. So we have these potential runoff sectors, these other potential impact sectors on the surrounding lands as well that we may not be able to influence or do anything about on those properties, but we want to keep that in mind as we design and select our treatments and, and, our our solutions for the project site that we do have influence on nice that's a really helpful overview go ahead neil yeah i just have a couple more things that that came to mind when jeff was talking that are pretty important one is of, of course agriculture um you know in in the western u.s we have a, a especially in the the southwest and the intermountain west we have a little bit less of tillage-based annual agriculture than in many other parts of the world um but that's a very significant um potential stressor on watershed health, both with the application of fertilizers in the runoff, as well as the uh, flash runoff in general, and sediment uh, is a very common uh, water and stream pollutant coming off of tillage-based agriculture. Um, so, you know, the transitions that are being promoted and enacted through the regenerative agriculture movement uh, and creating 
ground cover in these systems, uh, you know, year-round ground cover, whether it's living or mulch using cover crops and no-till. Those, those are very powerful ways to improve the relationship of agriculture and the watershed health. And then the other thing that's um, particularly, uh, you, I, I think, unique, but maybe not, uh, to the Western United States is uh, water law and the concept of water rights and the ownership of all the water within the watershed, which creates some often some pretty significant regulatory hurdles to implementing some of these uh, watershed restoration practices. Can you give me an example of something that's come up that has kind of tied your hands in what you would have wanted to do for a client or a project? I mean, if you don't have water rights, you cannot impound surface water in many of the Western United States. So um, sometimes all those water rights are owned. Sometimes you can purchase them. Sometimes you can apply for them and, and get ownership of them. Sometimes you have to find somebody that owns one and, and try to do some sort of swap. It's really complicated. And it actually, every single state has a different set of water laws. Um, so that's, but the, the, the simple part of it is that if you cannot access water rights for your property and you want to impound service water, you're going to be breaking the law. Yeah. Yeah, that so is some some people some some people are comfortable with that. Some people aren't. But you know that you just want to be aware of the um, potential uh, challenges before you move forward with any sort of implementation. Yeah, definitely. That definitely adds a layer of complexity to that kind of work. Now, when it comes to assessing a place for the potential interventions, the actions that you could do to start to set things on a different trajectory, right? Where are you reaching for in your toolbox? I know we talked about your guys' introductions into permaculture, the many different mentors and experiences that you've had in your careers that have given you access to new options and new techniques. How widely are you sampling here? What are you looking for opportunities to, to do when you get to a new place and, and the options that you have to select for, for making interventions? Maybe starting with Jeff? Yeah, great question. And so on a, on a broad scale, I start with what we refer to as reading the landscape. And that's both the, the physical landscape, but also keying in through that observation of what some of the legacy and, and current stressors are. And, uh, and so much of it is like, what's the context that I'm working in? If I'm working on a urban suburban site, you know, a residential site, I'm going to key into things a little bit differently than if I'm working out on maybe a wildlands, public lands, larger ranch site type of thing. And so kind of knowing your your context as you start to read the landscape. And so just some broad stuff um, from a from a water perspective, I'm always looking for what are my sources of runoff and what are my potential sinks or areas that I could um, hold some of that water, soak it into the ground, um, manage some of it. And, and from a reading the landscape perspective, I'm always looking at what's the current flow paths and what's the the kind of channel dimensions. Are we dealing with, you know, a little gully coming off of somebody's downspout off their roof that we can quantify how much water is coming off that roof and size, say, a rain garden accordingly? Or are we dealing with a many acre watershed that's under its current conditions has produced a channel that's, you know, just making something up two feet wide and a foot deep. And so if we key into those flow paths and the channel dimensions, then we know 
some base parameters of what we're working with. And we know that if we make a channel narrower or shallower, it's going to actually speed up the water and or give it more force. Whereas if we can make things broader and shallower, it's going to slow things down and, and help to, you know, decrease some of that velocity of the water. So I'm looking at those flow paths. I'm also keying into vegetation. What are the, what species are there, um, you know, on a, on a more of a landscaping setting, are these plants, you know, high water use, low water use? Is it native vegetation? Is it introduced stuff? You know, what plants, how much water do the plants that are here need? On a broader watershed scale, I'm looking for what we call indicator species. Is there vegetation that tells me that something is a wetland or or was like a facultative species that can do those species that can be in wetlands, but also indicate a drying out and trying to learn what I can from the vegetation community so I can see where water and soil conditions potentially have historically and could be again enhanced to hold more more water on a site um and so again yeah i think the context i'm sort of bouncing back and forth between the the sort of urban suburban and the kind of broader wildlands and there's definitely a lot of similar tools that are used but it's also a slightly different um contextual perspective on on those both from the scale and the um potential infrastructure associated whereas like for example, on a on a developed site, you know, you got to know right off the bat, where are your utilities? Because, you know, it might be the best spot to put an intervention. But if that's where your gas line is running, then, you know, you probably shouldn't be digging right on top of it as, as just one one example of that kind of understanding your concept. You know, the sooner you can identify constraints and limiting factors that can help to tease out where some of those sweet spots or opportunities are. So I kind of see it in some ways as like a process of delineation and elimination of like, you start to delineate areas, characterize them, understand the opportunities and constraints. And then over time, those kind of layer together and the sort of sweet spots or the spots with the highest potential return of holding water, of vegetation change, sort of emerge through that that process of reading the landscape assessing conditions and constraints and then starting to visualize what your potential treatments are and like what's your goal what are you trying to do or are you trying to slow erosion to protect infrastructure are you trying to um, establish trees only off of um, available runoff or so you kind of need also that like that goal because that'll help to determine what treatments and what strategies might be most appropriate for your particular site and your particular goals and needs. Right, right. And I like how you articulated back there too, the positive aspect of establishing these constraints. It's like, you know, someone gives you a white piece of paper and tells you to draw something. Well, you need more direction, you need more parameters that can often unlock a lot of creativity and a lot of options that without knowing your constraints uh, might not have come up otherwise. It's certainly how I've found in my design process too. Neil, what about yourself? How are you approaching these projects? And you know, 
maybe to add a little bit more specificity from this toolbox that I referred to before, you guys are really well known for the low-tech erosion control and the permaculture influences that come into that. But I mean, there are lots of options outside of low-tech options as well. Where do you start to make the distinction between, okay, this is gonna be an appropriate approach here, or this is a toolbox that might fit better within the context of what I'm designing for? How do you make those decisions? So I, I follow very similar practices to Jeff because we've worked closely. Um, so I definitely start with the reading the landscape. And some, some of the other pieces of that are looking at uh, like, what are the slopes that we're dealing with? You know, do we have steep slopes, gentle slopes? Where in the landscape do each of those occur? You know, so sometimes doing some sort of slope and aspect analysis, if I have good maps or it just in the field, you know, reading it, uh, looking for places where water and sediment are already settling or eroding. What is the actual um, kind of pulsing likelihood of the water, like fast flash runoff versus constant slow rainfall? You know, what's the rainfall periodicity and magnitude? Um, which the channel, you know, depth and width uh, of, in places will also give you very good indicators of what that is. I, I like to look around at the surrounding landscape and properties, you know, whenever possible, and look at what strategies have been applied there and what's working and what's not. Um, where where is vegetation and revegetation happening? Where is healthy vegetation? Where is degradation and erosion happening? Uh, and then I I also like to do a pretty thorough inventory of what resources are available on site or nearby for free uh, you know well gathering you know, it still has this cost but you know available on site uh, because it's nice to use on site resources rocks logs that sort of thing and also uh what equipment and what sort of access is available to the site that will often really determine what sort of strategies you implement um and then finally uh, what what's the budget and what are the goals both of the um, you know the project client or uh, the person who's managing the site the land managers and what are the um, potential outcomes of like what what's the type of stream category we're working in or what land form are we working in and looking to to mimic and uh, kind of work with those natural patterns as well and so I'll use those to help me select. Uh, but the, that's one of the beauties of having a, a big toolbox is that you can use usually several different strategies or several different techniques to a, achieve similar results depending on what's available, right? So, for example, if there's a, a lot of um, logs or a lot of brushed clippings or like a fire crew can come through and chip up, uh, you know, scrap branches and stuff, then you could use logs and wood chips and and branches but if there's a lot of rocks then you can use those and they have different durabilities obviously and, and also kind of different um results and responses to to the land and to the, the rainfall patterns but uh it, it's nice to be able to have lots of options to pick from and then pick what what's most appropriate to each even micro position on the site like you might use logs in one area and rocks in another just because you can get the materials close to those spots you know uh, easily and practically so practicality and budget and what's available often uh, dictate what I select. Sure. And when it comes to choosing materials, I mean, there are things that break down and disintegrate a lot faster than others. Each one behaves differently with water, right? Stone is likely to weather much more slowly and 
you know, there are risks with things like uh, wood or debris that water and its buoyancy can actually pick it up and move it around. <laughs> and so when you're assessing these, is a lot of it based on, sure, what's close to the site, but also how long it's going to last in the landscape and continue to serve its function. How are you assessing that with the materials and the tools that you have available? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. I think some of it goes back to um, the flow path and channel dimensions and like how much water is coming down. So I'm not going to go stick a bunch of wood chips in a, you know, an ephemeral flash flood gully and expect them to be around any longer than the first flow. First uh, yeah. yeah, so if it's a higher intensity flow path, then that's really favoring rock and bigger things. If it's distributed sheet flow, whereas lower energy, then some of these, you know, wood chips, brush, you get a lot more options in the low energy system to be creative in using using biomass, organic matter to help things. So you kind of got to have a understanding of, you know, what's what's the flow regime that you're working with? Is it, you know, one downspout? Is it sheet flow or is it a whole watershed funneling down into a channel? And that's gonna gonna determine, you know, some of those decisions as well. Um, and then some of it's, yeah, like how long do you need it there? Like one example is um, I'm working with a affordable housing subdivision here in, in Moab and they have a couple acres that were disturbed in the pre-development stage, but they're not going to be built on for three to five years. And there's amazing amounts of runoff and erosion coming off of it. And we decided to just do wood chip berms in a fish scale pattern because they're going to be developing it we only we're only trying to get a couple years of benefit take the strain off and then they're going to do the actual drainage system for the the property at at time of development so it sort of depends in part on on the context but um you know by by far rocks are going to last longer than brush or organics but brush and organics can also often be a byproduct of other land management that then can be reapplied over time because photosynthesis continues to happen, fuel thinning continues to happen, fruit tree pruning continues to happen, that those can be added as a way to just keep building up the soil and enhancing the soil biology, the soil sponge effect over time. And so those can be used in different applications depending on the longevity that you need whether it's going to be, you know, a repeating part of a property's land management practices of like, you know, a lot of people cut all their organics down and then they go throw it in the landfill, whereas they could be strategically putting that on the property and not every property has space or a need um, for it. But, you know, there's a lot of properties that that do that could turn something that becomes a resource that's treated as a waste product that's paid to get rid of could become the building blocks of healthier soil and water retention, retaining, re, water retention landscaping. Um, and so, yeah, and we've had, um, I've actually been pleasantly surprised some of the, we call them brush mineral structures. And Neil and I put together a little guidebook on this a couple years ago, and we've had some of those in Moab that have held up to way way bigger flows than I ever kind of anticipated them to to handle and there's something about the matrix of 
woody brush embedded with a mix of we call them dirty chips we mix wood chips with mineral soil and so we embed organic you know brushy stuff with this dirty chip mix and it becomes incredibly strong and holds moisture and can be a great way to create berms and we've rebuilt banks of eroded gullies and then you typically there's also some rock work done in there too at key locations and so when we think of when I think of the toolbox when we think of the toolbox we're often looking at how do we give ourselves creative freedom to hybridize everything we can mix and match solutions we can have stuff that has multiple types of materials in one structure as long as we pay attention to the anatomy of the structure in relation to the expected flow regimes that we're going to get and then we can we can we can mix and match and come up with some real creative solutions that are fit to the very specific nature of a specific site um and um, i think there's probably a lot of combinations that we haven't even thought of or come up with yet because there's just so many different opportunities to apply this this type of thinking and these types of techniques as a whole brilliant and that's what a one of the things that i've come to understand as a hallmark of low-tech erosion control is really making the best use of the materials around site things that are mostly easy enough to move around by by people not needing to bring in big machinery and such and also assessing very carefully the role that these materials need to perform not everything is a matter of stopping water like a wall but rather holding it maybe absorbing it in some areas diverting flow in in some cases, just uh, acting as a seedbed so that roots can get established and start to actually hold the substrate itself. Maybe, Neil, can you give me some concrete examples about how some of these mixtures or how some of these materials can be used for a very broad variety of interventions in, a, let's say, an erosion area, maybe even in a water body beyond just putting in a wall and holding water back? Yeah, sure, Oliver. Uh, so in general, um, we're interested in improving watershed health. And one of the kind of key mantras that I keep in mind is to restore sheet flow at every opportunity. Uh, and sheet flow is when water is flowing very shallowly across the landscape like a sheet. And sheet flow is low force and has high likelihood to infiltrate into the landscape. And that's that's really what we want is this infiltration and um, percolation of water, both to recharge aquifers and to provide the opportunity for vegetation to grow. And we 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 look at it from the perspective of uh, we want to shift a landscape from degenerative processes to generative to regenerative, and the regenerative processes and the regenerative state of the landscape is reliant upon the living organisms, right? Because they can regenerate. So rock structures are really, and, and also log structures, most of these structures are just interventions, temporary interventions to try and stimulate the, the living organisms and the ecosystem to knit back together and perform the functions in the long term, and both to retain water and, and sediment, and also to allow appropriate amounts of flow, right? So we're not just trying to hold back all the water. A stream requ requires flow of water through the entire stream corridor to really be healthy, right? So especially if you want to support fish and other sorts of kind of 
broader ecological habitat values. And so uh, one example where rock structures are, are commonly used in, let's say, uh, kind of a, a gently sloped landscape like an alluvial fan is you would you can build something called either a, a media luna, which is a a moon shaped rock structure. Or it could be made also of brush or or like fish scales, uh, wood chips, whales, like Jeff was talking about. And what that does, if the it's built on contour with the uh, tips of the moon shape uh, pointing up the hill, and that spreads water out. It reestablishes sheet flow. And so when we're coming out of steep areas in the landscape and moving into more gentle areas, which is exactly what an alluvial fan is, it forms as the steep area of landscape uh, changes to a, a shallower, gentler slope. Uh, if we can reestablish sheet flow, that allows water and sediment to settle in to the landscape, to soak in. And these rock structures, like you said, provide an opportunity for seeds to germinate and grow with the protection from herbivores. You know, So both livestock, as well as things like rodents and rabbits, are unable to eat the grass or saplings all the way down to the roots. And so the rocks protect them and allow them to establish, even in the presence of these um, animals, which might be damaging them slightly. And so they act as kind of a nucleus of fertility, which creates then further seed and propagules, which can spread out from there. So you concentrate some infiltration of water and sediment, as well as uh, seed and the potential for plants to grow. And it starts this uh, regenerative cycle. And uh, the other thing that the, I mean, the rocks also create a, a thermal mass, a more stable, uh, cooler soil condition. They, uh, in an arid climate, they'll condense humidity. So they provide all these different multi multiple functions to allow this kind of nucleus of fertility to establish. And then you can work your way out from these areas across the landscape on, in a broader context. So uh, a media luna or a rock mulch on contour is a, a very common and easy tool to apply that will be very effective to establish uh, strips of vegetative productivity that then radiate outward. Yeah, I love that example there. And Jeff, I know you also have a lot of experience working on very large landscapes, well, both of you do. And I'm wondering how some of these smaller interventions that may be more common or more associated with residential scale uh, projects, how do those scale up? What do those look like when you're working on maybe an entire watershed? Yeah, great question, Oliver. Um, there is a lot of a lot of scalability. I think um, the biggest difference is just in sheer quantity. Where on a residential landscape, maybe you do five, and on a watershed scale, maybe you're doing fifty. Um, in terms of whether it's a rock structure or um, basins, or you know stuff like that, I've found on a lot of the larger landscapes, we're doing a lot more like building up and building on top of the existing surface so that would be like building up with a rock a rock rundown a one rock dam a brush mineral berm whereas on the the residential landscape scale we might do a little bit more of what we call the water harvesting earthworks where we're you know physically disturbing and reshaping and recontouring potentially the whole property whether you know quarter acre half acre something like that and then stabilizing on top of that whereas the larger working landscapes were generally not doing as much of the the dirt moving and doing much more of like how do we stabilize the flow paths that are here and return sheet flow wherever we can like neil said and then start to aggrade in size channels and that's where we put in something like such as a one rock dam 
in a lift of say nine nine to twelve inches that then can sediment and instantly build a downcut channel back up closer to um, its original surface elevation to hold that moisture, start getting some of it soaking into the banks and rehydrating all the the vegetation that that is um, degrading on the edges. Because what happens is once we get a head cut and a, a channel starts incising all the vegetation on the edges starts to dry off and then it sloughs out. So we get both an unzipping where it, the, the gully moves up gradient, the head cut moves up gradient through a watershed, but we also get a widening where that dried off plant material starts sloughing in and, and making a bigger and wider gully. And so when we can put in a whole bunch of small interventions, we can break up that process, hold more moisture around, stabilize some of those edges. Um, I think another big distinction between working on a residential site versus a, a broad acre is the, the scale and the amount of resources it takes. So on a residential site, even on a residential site, I'm typically going in and looking at it in multiple phases or multiple patches based on topography where the downspouts are where the driveways are and that not everybody can afford to do the whole property at once so it might be like hey here's priority one priority two priority three and that prioritization um is equally or even more important the larger the landscape is because sometimes the things that look the worst are the deepest gullies might not have the best potential to heal or restore or protect anything. And so we want to look at these landscapes and say, where are the sweet spots? Where are the spots that are currently still looking good and looking intact or pretty good? And how do we preserve them and keep them that way? And then we start to look at, okay, and then what are some of the spots that, you know, are severely degraded that we want to start to restore or push towards um, a healthier condition and then we can prioritize that way but I think that's you know it's that that scale and um, what I love about the low-tech solutions is that you do them you know distributed capacity planned redundancy they can be built by hand they can be they're great for for volunteer workshops with some you know some coordination good leadership you can get lots of hands on deck and they also scale nicely to the use of heavy machinery. So there's a lot of times where we're building low tech structures because they're they're simple in their their layout and their construction, but we're doing it at such a scale that we're using um, skid steers or loaders to bring piles of rocks places. We're importing dump truck loads of material. We're using excavators to place some of the bigger rocks on some of the bigger treatments and then following that up with the handwork to kind of finish everything off and clean it up and tie it together so the they it scales really well it can be just one person with a shovel and a wheelbarrow or it can be a crew with machinery and and dump truck loads of material being brought in and it just really kind of depends on the needs of the site, the scale of the particular phase and the budget and resources available of like, how hard can you get in there and, and do these, these interventions to kind of set things on a, on a better hydrological trajectory. Very cool. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. And 
Now, we've been talking up until now about the process of making decisions, the toolbox that we have to make interventions and get things done, and the different, well, I guess, sequence of events to get work underway. I would really love to know from both of you about the monitoring and the maintenance that happens on these. I feel like this is one of the aspects of this type of work that is most often overlooked and is most crucial to actual long-term success and getting the most out of the value of the initial interventions. Maybe Neil, you could start by telling me about what you're looking for over time to see that these things actually are functioning the way they should and the expectations that either clients or people who work on this over uh, seasons or years should expect to budget for in terms of time and maybe even resources to properly maintain them for efficacy? I know that's a big question. Maybe we take it one at a time. Yeah, I, I mean, we'll start with your, your first part of your question. What are we looking for, right? So um, we're, we're looking for either indicators that the structures have functioned properly and improved the health of the small area and the larger watershed, or so that this they have of, sorry, real quick. So this in terms of uh, not seeing the continued erosion that you were probably brought in in the first place to re to rectify, and then also looking that perhaps the biology is starting to take over the job that the initial interventions were meant to do. That that's exactly correct. Yeah. So we're looking uh, both at the the vegetation as well as the soils and the geomorphology and the hydrology and the potential water flow paths and locations of deposition and erosion uh that's specific to each structure as well as specific to the project as a whole we're also looking at how um livestock wildlife other sorts of uh animal components of the ecology are interacting with the structures and if they're impacting the vegetative recruitment and production or the the physical geomorphological shape and of the structures or the treatments so we're, we're looking at all those things and we, we put them into two categories did it work did it work right or well or did it did it break somewhere and need repair right so that you kind of have initially you break it into those two categories of, of what you might do next so indicators that it's working correctly generally are there's sediment deposition uh, often behind the, you know on the uphill side of the structure that means that the uh, the structure has slowed the water down enough to deposit sediment which is often also carrying seeds but it means that the water is soaking in as well so all those things are happening um and it's structurally enhancing the integrity of the treatment usually because the sediment goes in and it kind of mortars things together right so there's that piece and then the next piece is is their vegetative recruitment so is, is new grass or willows or other sorts of uh plant species growing in the structure, around the structure, uh, are they allowing it to maintain its effectiveness or are they causing the water flow path to change some direction unexpectedly? Um, and how are they vibrant? Are they vigorous? Are they being eaten by animals? Are they still able to, you know, continue to grow and reproduce? Are they, uh, is there health declining? So we're looking at, you know, those, those, those sorts of indicators. Uh, are the species changing around the structure? which would be indicating that it's either getting wetter or drier. So you really want to know which species tolerate what sort of water regimes, as Jeff was mentioning earlier, are they wetland species that are now growing in there, whereas previously it was facultative species that can grow in wet and dry environments? Is the wetted perimeter of the overall area increasing, meaning are there more wet or water-loving plant species growing wider uh, out along the stream corridor or the water flow path corridor um, and the drier species are moving further and further away from where, where the water flow path is. 
So we're looking for those things. Those are all indicators that the structure is functioning properly. Or uh, did water cut a channel around the structure and there's a little you know erosion gully happening? And often you, you'll both get a good amount of sediment uh, deposited behind the structure and some good plant recruitment and productivity. And also there will be some sort of part where the structure failed a little bit and needs some repair or maintenance. And so then you go in and you want you want to ideally have a chance both to go in and monitor as well as to repair and maintain. And sometimes those happen at the same time. Sometimes it's just a little thing like uh, this structure needs 10 rocks on this one side to smooth out the transition between the, the edge of the flow path and the upland area and make sure that water can flow easily into the structure and through the structure and not around it. So, you know, dialing in and just trimming up the edges can often happen during monitoring that maintenance piece or other times it might be more significant they, like oh this structure actually needs to kind of be taken apart and rebuilt because the one rock dam has had a big amount of scour under it because it was built too tall or the splash apron wasn't you know built robustly enough and so you kind of have to take it apart and put it back together and that might happen during monitoring or it might require you know coming back out with uh, you know some equipment or a bigger crew or something like that and then the, the other thing that you might decide during monitoring is that this structure worked really well. It captured sediment, it created vegetative productivity. So do we add another layer on top of it? If it's a grade control structure, like the one rock dam or log map, do we add another layer of logs or rocks just upstream to continue raising and aggrading that channel? Um, or if it were something like a, a media luna or a rock mulch on contour or something like that, do we add some more strips in between the ones that are existing so that we can continue to slow down this um, movement of water and maintain sheet flow and increase those strips of productivity of vegetation. Uh, so what, what are the next steps to continue the enhancement um, is also an optimal thing to consider. So that one of the, at the, at the residential scale, until you get to real connectivity with the larger water flow, uh, as, as Jeff said, it's often kind of a, a one and done or close to that. You usually are having less of the, the maintenance stuff um, because it, most of the flows are more predictable. Uh, and uh, at the larger scale, uh, for me in particular, I, I really like to have three years of, of, for a project, if possible, because you want to be able to build something, go back and see how it worked, improve your actual techniques a little bit based on your feedback, as well as continue to implement further techniques. And partly because often you can't do it all at once. It's just that the scope and scale is so large that you can't do it all at once. And so you have to prioritize and pick those sweet spots first. Um, Ideally, and and sometimes in the larger landscape, we're actually working up the watershed because the sediment is a very powerful tool to actually heal the watershed. And so, if you just treat all the sources of sediment, uh, then often it's harder to get structures lower down in the landscape to fill up and actually heal the landscape. So sometimes you'll start with stuff low in the landscape to capture that sediment and use it to heal, and then you'll work your way up to treating the the upper parts of the landscape that are the sources of sediment. And other times that might not be appropriate. So there's a, a lot of kind of subtle prioritization in there as well, but it's always valuable to remember that the sediment is a tool for healing these structures as well as a potential pollutant. So the problem can be the solution. Nice, that's a super useful overview of what the process looks like and some of the expectations in the longer term. And you touched on it a little bit there, but maybe Jeff, you could go a little deeper into the troubleshooting process. If something is not working out the way that you were expecting, how do you go about assessing either, you know, how much needs to be prepared or what new direction needs to be taken in order to achieve those results? Yeah, so 
I like to say that that water is brutally honest. If there is a weak spot in your structure or if your elevations aren't correct, water will have no problem pointing that out to you. And um, so that troubleshooting is often at its heart comes back to what did the water do? Did it, you know, did it find a low spot? Is my, you know, bank left too low and it just, you know, what we call end cutting or scoured a new channel and made it look as if the structure is not even there anymore. So that's kind of common points of failure are like end cutting. So like cutting around the side of a structure, um, scour where it comes over the top of the structure and actually creates a pool beneath the structure that then causes the structure to collapse into it. Um, and you'll hit on that a little bit. And then there's also the leading edge, especially for like a head cut. If you don't get your materials up tight with that head cut, it can just start head cutting right up gradient of your structure because the water is going under and through your structure rather than over it. So that's kind of one of the the first things I'm always doing on a follow up, you know, visual inspection is what did the water actually do? And is it because I built the structure? Um, did the structure not get built properly or was there another issue? And so, and Neil hit on this, um, we found that ungulate impact, you know, hoof shear of cows, elk, deer, they can really pug up and damage those most critical junctures, like that juncture between the edges of your structure and the natural landscape and the juncture between the top of your structure and the landscape. And especially when it's wet, if, you know, they, some animal, some heavy thing goes in there and hugs it up a lot, all of a sudden there can be a new low spot that wasn't there when you built the structure. And so when we can, we're often armoring, rock armoring or otherwise up onto the banks and a little bit away around our structure to give it an extra buffer in anticipation of that animal impact, especially if we know that it's a place that's actively grazed or frequented by by wildlife. We'll try to actually overbuild the structure in anticipation of those common impacts, knowing that we may or may not have the ability to come back and do any maintenance. Um, a, a lot of these on public land projects, it might be a one-year grant cycle, so there may just not be anything in the budget, even though everybody might agree, we want three years, five years on this, but there might only be one year to actually build anything and then three to five years to monitor it. But if you don't have that ability to get back in there and do that, that maintenance, especially if you can catch it early on, like Neil said, it's just 10 rocks. You let it go a couple seasons or a couple flow events. And all of a sudden you could have a have a problem that's equal to or greater than what you started with. So it's really like building, locating things properly, building their physical shape properly, and then integrating it into the surrounding landscape in a robust enough way to withstand or, you know, attempt to withstand the stressors that you anticipate on that, both water, animals, other, other potential impacts. Um, with that in mind, I'm I'm always encouraging my clients. Like, with, I'd love to do a three to five year. Um, we've been starting to on some of these one year grant cycles. We do the main build in the fall, and then we leave a certain amount of budget to uh, to come back after spring runoff 
and see, you know, what, what we can do with a couple days to either fix things if needed or add a couple more structures where we see, oh, you know, we did this one project recently where we spaced some one rock dams about 40 feet apart because that's what, you know, we had to prioritize what we had the resources to do to treat the area. They've all worked great, but they could have both another lift, raise up each of the existing ones and infill one or two more between each ones because we're like getting flow slowed down we're catching sediment but there's just more potential and that's what i've i've found over time is that almost always you could use more structures so you got to kind of start with a prioritization you got to start with a spacing that makes sense to let you treat a given area effectively but in reality this stuff's meant to be iterative and replicated and so it's really beneficial when you are able to go back see what happens fix what's there and then add some more stuff so that you keep accruing those benefits um just another example on that um no and uh, like neil hit on it a bit too is like when you have say a one rock dam uh in a channel it's fully functional in those first flows and it once it does its job exactly as designed it fills up with sediment and then it's as if it's not there anymore because it's now the channel's raised so you've gotten those benefits but then once it's covered in sediment you're not slowing those flows and catching the next round of sediment so you've kind of gained some functionality you've gained benefit your structure was a complete success and then you've lost some of that original functionality that you designed for because it's now buried in sediment by design. And so those situations, it's really nice to be able to go back, put another lift, put another lift. And depending on how deep your gully is, you know, that could go on for, for quite a while until you achieve the stability of either the, the sediment flows or you reconnect the hydrology in the channel in the way that is appropriate to the landscape that you're working within. And I feel like that's really to speak in favor of people who are starting small, but are living close to or are constantly interacting with the watershed that they're uh, performing these actions on. That that's actually an advantage, sometimes even with people with more experience than, uh, than have to leave a project and not come back and get those learnings or be able to participate in the evolution of it as it responds to the interventions and requires new ones. Uh, it's I, I always have taken that message as kind of a call to action for those of us who have less experience but have the advantage of being able to to interact with and participate in this for the long term. Yeah, you're absolutely right, Oliver. I mean, there's just so much value in continually observing and continually interacting, getting out there while it's actually raining and flowing, seeing what's happening, reading the landscape, starting small and then repeating, start, you know, do something, see what happens and then add to it. And like continually doing that over a number of years and see these things can be incredibly beneficial. And um, it's actually one of the things I struggle with as a contractor is that usually the nature of, of the sources, I get in there, we do it and then we're done. And like, most grants aren't going to fund to the same place twice. So if it's a grant funded project, you're really almost definitely going to just be one and done. You might be able to get that into two visits or 
a couple years, depending on like the duration of the grant. Um, and then even for a lot of clients, and I, I encourage this, I, I encourage my clients to to use me and my crew to come in and do the heavy lifting, to do the initial phases, to get things started, to to help educate the client. And then I encourage them to observe it and interact and keep adding to what we do. Cause sometimes the, the initial scale needs some extra support. If somebody's trying to treat a big area, you know, in a short period of time for, um, you know, flood protection of a, of a home or something like that sometimes takes an initial bigger push, but so much of this, the beauty is exactly that you can get out there. You can start with just a single one rock dam, see how it works add to it the next year with two more and then you know grow it that way and just you know start small and and see it and work with it over time and have that stewardship element which i think is stewardship to me is one of the key drivers of watershed health and one of the key attributes of permaculture is that it's really it's meant to be an interactive sport. It's not just you you do something and, and watch it. I mean, you do watch it, but you don't, it's not hands-off. It's very hands-on. And the more that people can be doing that, the more you learn, the more you catch things while they're small, and the more you innovate and say, oh, what if? What if I tried this? What if, you know, that happened? Maybe I want more of that. So I didn't even, some emergent quality that wasn't even thought of at first becomes this this like insight that's like, oh, I can work with things this way and it's having a positive benefit. I'm going to keep doing that. Um, so that's that's what kind of excites me a lot about this stuff is that it's accessible and it's it's fun and interactive. And it's because it's low tech and because it's you start small, even if you quote fail, you're really not because you're going to learn something. And like the example of the one rock dam that blows out around the edge that's actually also part of a natural channel building process is that you've caught some sediment. And now instead of it being a straight shot, there's a little bit of a meander in it. And now all of a sudden that, that meander and that blowout on one side actually helps to slow the water down a little bit. You might still want to fix it, or you might want to put a treatment down gradient or, you know, there, you may not want to just let it go unchecked, but it's not necessarily all is lost. It's like, no, learn from it and work with it and, and keep at it. Absolutely. Yeah, that's fantastic advice. And now before we start to wrap up this episode, I would love to hear from both of you, some of your insights and maybe key learnings over the years, things that you've observed that have changed the way that you've thought or changed the way that you work. And, you know, maybe if there's a story or a little anecdote that goes along with that too, something that sticks out in your mind. Neil, have you got some insights there? Uh, Yeah, I, I think dovetailing into something Jeff talked about earlier that the the critical points of failure that happen with these structures um well let me back up just a little bit one of the amazing things about the low-tech erosion control structures is that generally um the if it fails it has a low consequence so it's low effort low risk which I I really like as a as a general um category of interventions in the landscape Right. You build a one rock dam. If it fails, it's not going to be a huge sediment or water blowout like something like a, a you know, three or four foot tall check dam might do or or an actual um, dam or pond in the landscape. So it means that anyone can get started with it. Right. Um, so that's that was actually 
a big insight and learning to me was working with the Quivira Coalition and doing these workshops where it's just a bunch of volunteers, people that have never done this before in their life. And with just a little bit of guidance and, and coaching and maybe some you know, minor follow-up maintenance or improvements, large quantities of a watershed can be treated in just a couple of days with a bunch of people, right? And so I think that that, that translates very well to the global population of people living on and managing lands in that something like a, a low risk structure, like a one rock dam, you can build hundreds of them within a community and change the watershed health dramatically with fair, fairly low risk and fairly low um, effort, right? And then all of that community can be learning about how the, those watershed processes happen and function on their specific site with their specific styles of of intervention. So that observe and interact principle is, is very powerfully cycled uh, and uh, over and over again. And that's one of the things that we've integrated into our course is this uh, adaptive management cycle where you're observing, designing, implementing, maintaining and monitoring, and then adapting based on that feedback. And so that's the, the optimal scenario. And that can be very um, effectively practiced in, in communities that steward land uh, uh, globally, you know, uh, particularly out, outside of the industrial, um, industrialized world. So, and and then the the other real insights that I, I've seen is um, Jeff and I did a, a bunch of monitoring of projects that we built up in the Comanche Creek watershed, and seeing these points of failure on the the side cuts, like the going around the edge of the structure or up on the top of the structure um, due particularly to things like livestock grazing or voles and uh, you know small rodents and stuff do these things too, like big holes and cause new, new water flow paths. Uh, and so spending a little bit of extra time and resource making the structure more robust and fit more smoothly into the landscape is very worth your while. It, rather than just trying to build more structures faster. Just spending that extra attention to detail will provide a much better result. And so not you know, paying, paying very close attention to those points of failure, the upstream edge and the side edges and the downstream edge of any sort of intervention and really buttoning up your structures and making them tight and strong and robust is, is a very valuable piece. And you will be happy with yourself when you come back and see it. And, and you will learn very quickly if you didn't do it correctly. So um, that's my other in, insight is that to get out there and just do something, right? Just try it and it doesn't, and, and start small and just do something little and see and watch the water flow and start to train your eye and your understanding around how water and sediment move in the landscape together and, and what sort of interventions cause what changes in those flow paths. Brilliant, love those. Jeff, do you have any insights or learnings from the last couple of years that have really stuck out to you or changed the way that you work yeah i do i do i i, I echo i think neil and i've been on such a a parallel and collaborative um journey and learning experience i think i echo a lot of what he's he's said and um one thing that really sticks out to me that i, I have a lot of fun with and i feel like it was part of our learning journey was the the concept of fitting the structure to the landscape and um a very specific example was it would have been in 2012, 2013, 2014, we were building a whole bunch of these um, log and fabric step falls or log drop structures in the slope wetlands. And 
at the time we were taught and told, okay, you got to square up the head cut, you got to trim all the edges, and then you stack the logs nice and neat in there. And that's how you build these. And so we, we were doing that and, and they, they work, they look good. And then as Neil mentioned, we went back and we looked at a lot and we just started seeing the same issues over and over again. We started seeing the pattern language of these log and fabric step falls, which was that they were having damage and issues on the leading edge and the sides because of the ungulates, the voles, um, and sometimes the water itself of not being able to get them tight enough. So then we had a project um, that Neil and I and another colleague worked on where we had these three giant head cuts a whole bunch of logs and instead of squaring them off we just fit the logs in a pattern that matched the contour of the head cut we wedged them underneath the the cut banks so we were able to keep more of the existing vegetation intact and we created these structures that really fit the landscape they were really tight and robust and they looked really cool they looked a lot more natural than a square staircase or a rectangular staircase in the middle of a, of a wet, of a wetland. Um, and so that concept of fitting it to the landscape and finding materials and your creativity to adapt the shape of the structure to meet the shape of the landscape, rather than trying to change the shape of the landscape so that you can make a nice tidy textbook looking structure. Um, and I think that was the beginning of a lot of our creative applications of these hybrid structures of using um, brush and dirty wood chips and rocks and using them all together so that we could put different materials in different places, fit them together so that they work good and that they're stable and then match them to the pattern language that we're working with. And that pattern language is both the flow regimes, the common points of failure and the uh, anatomy of structures of like so as long as we get things shaped properly we use appropriate materials of size and durability for the given application and we work with our known topography and flow paths we can create structures that each one looks a little different because each one is because each one is fit to the specific micro topography and micro characteristics of the spot that we're treating and that, you know, the, the textbook examples are awesome for learning the base concepts, but I just encourage all our listeners and people doing this, be creative and, and be willing to stray from what the, the textbooks say, from what we say, to creatively apply the learnings and the patterns in a way that makes sense for your application. And it might look totally different and i'd love to see pictures of it as y'all kind of go out there and and get creative and and make this stuff work for you and your situation man i love that and so to add to some of what you've been talking about and what you've been teaching up to this point can neil maybe you starting describe the low-tech erosion control course that you guys teach together and some of the resources and the tools that are in that to help people get started and start taking action like you've been mentioning. Sure. Yep. So Oliver, Jeffrey and I have put together uh, an online course and the current version is a self-paced course. And so you can, it's all pre-recorded. You can go in and watch it at your leisure and come back to it as needed, depending on how you're applying the different teachings and stuff. And uh, 
what we've done is we created basically a, a stepwise process uh, that's an iterative cycle where you uh, observe and assess the land, then you design your project, and then you implement it, and then you monitor and maintain it, and you iterate that cycle. And you may kind of skip around to different parts of the cycle as well as you're continuing to iterate it. And so each part of the cycle has a, a series of steps that you work through to understand how to read the landscape and design your project and implement it in a practical way. And then what to do is follow up maintenance and monitoring. Uh, and then we, so we walk you through each of those stages of the process and we provide resources uh, such as a, a site assessment checklist and uh, an extensive toolkit of different treatments and structures that you can start with and consider for different applications and how you might select each one of those, as well as guidance and how to organize your staging of materials, your access to the land, uh, how you might move equipment through it, how you then build the structures, how you clean up and, and um, close the project in an effective way so you don't leave a bunch of disturbance or other sorts of debris around. So we walk you through that as well as what you might do to do some follow-up maintenance and monitoring whenever that's available and accessible as, as we always encourage it. Um, and so we walk you all the way through that. And also uh, within the pre-recorded sessions are a, a series of Q&A. Um, and I, we also have a huge resource list to, to connect you with other valuable tools and, and articles and videos and, and guidelines that are out there specific to, to watershed restoration type of work. Fantastic. Jeff, do you have anything to add to that of uh, what people can expect in that course or maybe some other resources that can get them started on their own project? Yeah, I think Neil did a great job summarizing the course. So I'm going to, I'm going to leave that at that, but I, I highly recommend it for folks that want to deep dive into low tech erosion control. I mean, we put, put a lot of effort to really try to break this stuff down and distill it into useful bites that people can can get rolling with. So so check out that course. Um, there's also some other other nonprofits that have occasional hands-on volunteer days. And so I'll list out a few of those. So the Kavira Coalition, that's um, essentially where Neil and I both got started with this. Um, the Albuquerque Wildlife Federation and another um, New Mexico-based group, they have a whole season long um you know monthly work parties out at long long standing restoration projects uh the watershed management group based out of uh, tucson arizona has a lot of great trainings and um both for kind of urban suburban water harvesting as well as they do do a lot of erosion control stuff and then there's um a utah based group called the sagebrush collaborative that's that's getting involved in a lot of these types they're doing a lot of beaver dam analogs and kind of in in stream channel work as well and then there's um the inner mountain west joint venture which is looking at um also at sagebrush um, restoration around the western states so those are a few organizations that have hands-on workday opportunities and have some resources available for um you know folks like like me that want the hands-on and um that's you know that list is kind of centric to the region i'm in and I'm, I'm sure there's other other groups in other parts of the country and the world that are also doing similar stuff i'm not not familiar with all of those um and then i would add that if you go to my website terrasofia.com and under the resources tab there's 
there's quite a few um, free webinars and past um, presentations on both low-tech erosion control as well as um, rainwater harvesting and water harvesting landscapes and permaculture and stuff. So there's um, trying to make some of this these resources available for, for free for folks as well. Fantastic. That's quite a list there. And I'll be sure to link to all of those in the show notes for this episode. Now, Neil, I know you also teach with OSU. You've got your own company. How can people get in touch with you? Uh, yeah, so my company is uh, RT Permaculture, Reno Tahoe Permaculture. And uh, <clears throat> I also have an extensive list of free re resources on my site website. You can, you can go there and, and check things out. And you can contact me through that. I have a contact page. Uh, my email is on there, my phone number and everything. So you can get a hold of me easily that way. And then, yeah, I also teach with OSU. Uh, right now we're uh, finishing up the development of the permaculture water management course there through OSU. And uh, it's available for registration for the self-paced course and the practicum will run for the first time next spring. And in that we'll walk people through um, a comprehensive assessment and development of a permaculture water management plan for your site. Amazing. Well, look, gentlemen, I know there's so much more that we could cover on this topic, and there are many different ways to, you know, get started, find a specialty even within this. And quite frankly, your course is very high on my list of what I'm trying to get to next. I have to wrap up my professional certification with water stories. And I think a little bit of course material on another one that I'm wrapping up at the moment. And then, and then this is what I'm hoping to dive into. So it was great to get not only a window into the resources that you've already put out, but also some ideas and knowledge from your experience over the years. Thank you so much for your time. And I look forward to being in touch real soon. Thank you, Oliver. Great. Thanks, Oliver. Appreciate it. Thanks once again to Neil and Jeff. I've got all the links to their companies and their online course on low-tech erosion control in the show notes for this episode at regenerativeskills.com. Now, before we wrap this up, just remember that these episodes are only the beginning of the learning resources, design and coaching services, in-person courses, and interactive community that are available through Regenerative Skills. The Discord server is our free community where you can connect with other like-minded listeners, exchange ideas, stories, tips, and resources, as well as interact with me directly and quite a few former guests from this show. Our Instagram account, at regen underscore skills, is the best place to see the projects that me and the team are working on, both for clients and collaborators, as well as on our own properties. I'll also be announcing the certification courses, workshops, and gatherings that we've got coming up later this year. If you're interested in getting dedicated support for your own project, you can now schedule a free planning session with one of our team members through the request form on our website. You can also find all the links, show notes, and past resources there at regenerativeskills.com. We truly believe that no matter your experience, your knowledge, abilities, resources, or background, you can be a powerful force for regeneration on this planet, and we're here to help you find your path. So as always, remember to keep taking those little steps every day towards a regenerative future, and I'll be right by your side along the way.